0: Motives are much less important than behavior. We all know this. If someone has good intentions but treats people badly, those good intentions mean nothing. As it is with individuals, so it is with governments. Capitalism might sound less noble than communism—the individual pursues success to the best of his abilities—that's capitalism—versus everyone shares everything equally—that's communism. But it is capitalism that has produced freedom, and it alone has lifted millions from poverty, while communism has kept millions impoverished and, without exception, crushed freedom. Capitalism, for all its imperfections, enables a decent society. Communism, whatever its stated intentions, leads to evil. Yet increasingly, people either ignore or deny the evil of this ideology, which, within a period of only 60 years, created modern totalitarianism and deprived more people of human rights, and tortured and killed more people than any ideology in history. How can we explain this? There are two ways. One is ignorance. People just don't know the truth about communism. The second is willful blindness. People know the truth but choose to ignore it because the truth about communism's horrors is too painful to confront. Given the sad state of our educational system, we can assume most people fall into the first category they just don't know. So let me offer some facts. But before I do, I need to address another question. Why is it important that everyone know what communism did? Here are three reasons. First. We have a moral obligation to the victims of communism not to forget them. Just as Americans have a moral obligation to remember the victims of slavery, we have the same obligation to the billion victims of communism, especially the hundred million who were murdered. Second, the best way to prevent an evil from reoccurring is to confront it in all its horror. The fact that many people today, especially young people, mention communism as a viable option for modern society proves they don't know communism's moral record. Therefore, they do not properly fear communism, which means this evil could happen again. And why could it happen again? That brings us to reason number three. The leaders of communist regimes and the vast number of people who help those leaders torture, enslave, and murder were nearly all normal people. Of course, some were psychopaths, but most were not, which means that any society, including free ones, can devolve into communism or some analogous evil. Now, some facts. Based on the authoritative Black Book of Communism, written by six French scholars and published in the United States by Harvard University Press, Here are the numbers of people murdered by communist regimes, not soldiers, ordinary civilians. Vietnam, 1 million. Eastern Europe, 1 million. Ethiopia, 1.5 million. North Korea, 2 million. Cambodia, 2 million. The Soviet Union, 20 million. China, 65 million. And the numbers are conservative. And of course, these numbers do not describe the suffering endured by hundreds of millions of people who were not murdered the systematic stripping people of their right to speak freely, to worship freely, to start a business, or even to travel without party permission, no non-communist judiciary or media, the poverty of nearly all communist countries, the imprisonment of vast numbers of people, and, of course, the trauma suffered by the hundreds of millions of friends and relatives of the murdered and imprisoned. These numbers don't tell you about the frozen millions in the vast Soviet-Siberian prison camp system known as the Gulag Archipelago, or the Vietnamese communists' routine practice of burying peasants alive to terrorize other peasants into supporting the communists, or Mao Zedong's regular use of hideous tortures to punish opponents and intimidate peasants. People associate evil with darkness, but that's not accurate. It is easy to look into the dark. It is very hard to stare into bright light. One should therefore associate evil with extreme brightness, given that people rarely look at real evil. And those who do not confront real evil often make up evils, like systemic racism in 21st century America, or toxic masculinity, or patriarchy, that are much easier to confront. The Book of Psalms states, those of you who love god must hate evil if you don't believe in god here's another way of putting it those of you who love people must hate evil if you don't hate communism you don't care about much less love people i'm dennis prager
1: venezuela where i was born and still have family bad cuba bad zimbabwe bad soviet union bad China under Mao, bad. Sweden, Denmark, Norway, good. This is the Socialist Report Card as it currently stands. Never mind that Venezuela, Cuba, Zimbabwe, the Soviet Union, Mao's China were once good. Once they go bad, they stay bad and are quickly forgotten, lost down the memory hole. But those Nordic paradises, they never let you down. Whenever Bernie, the squad, and the growing horde of democratic socialists ever get cornered, there's always, like Denmark, to come to the rescue. No, no, we don't want anything like what's going on in Venezuela. Denmark is what we have in mind. Except they don't. And it's time we all figured this out, before it's too late. Here's what you need to know about Scandinavian countries. They are capitalists in wealth creation and socialists in wealth distribution. They have low corporate taxes—around 20%, no higher than in America. Unlike America, neither Norway nor Sweden nor Denmark has a government-set minimum wage. Most make it very easy to start a new business. Most have private health care and education options. Yes, the Nordic countries have an expansive welfare state, but everyone pays into the system—rich, middle class, and poor. Nobody escapes the tax man because nobody escapes the 25% value added tax. This sales tax, a tax on what you buy, is regressive, meaning it falls much more heavily, percentage of income wise, on the poor and the middle class than it does on the rich. This concept is a complete non starter for American socialists who want only the rich to pay more, even though America's tax system is already steeply progressive. The rich The top 10% pay about 70% of all income taxes, but for the socialists, it never seems to be enough. So, if the American Left has rejected the Scandinavian model, which model is it embracing? Well, where do the leading figures of the American Left, from Sean Penn to Michael Moore and Bill Ayers, go when they want to praise socialism? Here's a hint. When was the last time you saw Bernie in Copenhagen? First, it was the Soviet Union. Then it was Cuba. Then it was Venezuela. Venezuelan socialism, like current American socialism, is based on sowing social division. The left in Venezuela divided the country not merely between the rich and the poor, but white and black or brown—between Europeans, Africans, and indigenous people. Hugo Chavez made much of his black and Indian roots. Venezuelan socialists were bringing down statues of Columbus long before American leftists did. Once you establish the villain class, taking away their wealth is not hard to do. Whatever Chavez and now his successor, Nicolas Maduro wanted, they took, or if you care about moral clarity, they stole. Always, like the French and Russian revolutions in the name of equality. It didn't start out that way, of course. It never does. Chavez portrayed himself as a moderate in his early presidential campaigns. Expropriations came later. What Chavez and Maduro achieved at the end of a gun, the American left would achieve through extremely high taxation on income, wealth, and inheritance. But we shouldn't leave guns out of this discussion. In 2010, Venezuelan socialists started a campaign to disarm law-abiding citizens under the guise of stopping gun violence. They called it Desarma la Violencia. When citizens, now unarmed, began to protest the corruption and tyranny of the socialist government, Chávez and then Maduro unleashed a group of criminal thugs, the Colectivos, to terrorize them. Their specific targets included small business owners, entrepreneurs, farmers, and clergy. There are no Colectivos or Antifa in Scandinavia. Venezuela is now a cautionary tale. All the people you see on the news rummaging through garbage cans or standing in line to get food, toilet paper, and gas—those are the ordinary citizens. The country's leaders aren't missing any meals. The socialist elite—the so-called chavistas—eat in fine restaurants and go on European vacations. Miraculously, it always works out that way. The American left keeps telling us they want to take us to Stockholm but its policies point in the direction of Caracas. My birth country was once prosperous and free, but socialism destroyed it. Take heed, America. I'm Debbie D'Souza for Prager University.
2: I'm a citizen of Denmark, the Disneyland of socialism, where everybody is happy and healthy. Forget the Soviet Union, Cuba, Venezuela, and all those power-mad Marxists who got it wrong. Denmark is a model to follow. There's just one problem. It's a fantasy. For it to be true, Denmark would have to be a socialist country. But it's not. If it were, it would have gone Venezuela a long time ago. Sorry to bring all the new fans of socialism the bad news. But that's the reality. Yes, it's true that Denmark has high taxes and a high level of government spending. Key features of a socialist mentality. But in almost every other respect, Denmark is a full-on free-market capitalist country. And it has some of the strongest protection of individual property rights in the world. And it's a particularly easy place to open a business. According to the World Bank, there is less bureaucratic red tape in Denmark than in any other country, except for New Zealand and Singapore. And the labor market is less regulated than in most countries. Here's something you probably didn't know. There are no minimum wage laws in Denmark. It's not surprising then – or maybe it is surprising, given all the misinformation out there – that Denmark ranks consistently as one of the top-ranked free market economies in the world by the Fraser Institute in Canada and the Heritage Foundation. So if Denmark is not a socialist country, what is it? The answer is pretty straightforward. It's a small capitalist country, about the size and population of Maryland, whose citizens pay oodles in taxes in exchange for oodles and benefits. Well, What's wrong with that, you might ask? Only this. For the government to pay out such benefits, you need citizens to make enough money to pay the necessary taxes. And that's only possible through a free market economy. Let me explain with some Danish history. Denmark, like its Scandinavian neighbors, Sweden and Norway, made a remarkable economic recovery after the Second World War. The combination of a highly productive workforce and, get this, low taxes created a lot of wealth. So, like every other wealthy welfare state, Denmark became wealthy before it created the welfare state. Relative to Europe, Denmark's economic high watermark mark was in the 1950s. Relative to the US, it was in the early 70s. It was then, in the late 60s and early 70s, that the country's ruling elite became preoccupied with wealth redistribution. But the price paid for this social experiment was steep and swift. The expansion of public spending led to a severe economic crisis. The national debt skyrocketed. It took decades of consolidation, structural reforms, and curtailing of welfare schemes to straighten out this mess. This is the stuff you never hear about from the Danish model crowd. The sharp tax highs and spending also sparked a widespread popular revolt and led to the emergence. Of the tax protesters' party, Fremtskridspartiet. Even though the party no longer exists, the widespread desire to cut taxes remains. It's worth noting that the welfare state originally began with government pension payments to the elderly. These social security-like payments are now in the process of being overtaken by private pension savings plans, the Danish equivalent to a 401k. That's right. In reality, Denmark is gradually moving away from US-style social security. It can't afford it. Denmark, the so-called socialist model, is returning the responsibility for retirement savings back to its citizens. And what about healthcare? Free, right? Nothing is free. Danes pay for their healthcare through their high taxes. Private healthcare insurance is available, however. It's becoming more and more popular as long wait times associated with government-run medical care becomes less and less popular. But in a welfare state, education is free, right? Well, that's another thing about free. It doesn't mean ideal. Almost one in five parents in Denmark chooses to send his or her children to private schools, paying part of the bill themselves. Yes, college is free and even includes a living allowance. But there's a growing problem of getting students to graduate. Many wish to stay students and be supported by the state. One of those welfare state problems socialists don't like to talk about. And again, all this free stuff comes with a price. The average Dane pays 50% of his income in consumption and income taxes. That's right, I said 50%, while earning 15% less than the average American. After taxes, An average American has a 27% higher disposable income than a Dane. Don't get me wrong. Bray windows aside, Denmark has much to recommend it. It's just that being a socialist paradise isn't one of them. I'm Otto brons Petersen, economist for the Center of Political Studies in Copenhagen, Denmark, for Prager University.
3: Thank you. Democratic socialism. It's not the same as socialism socialism, because it's democratic. Right? Or something. Right? People are buying that. People buy that now, right? Apparently. As though adding the word democratic in front of a word changes what it means. Just because we toss something to a vote doesn't change what that something is. Nor does it alter whether that something is inherently good or bad. Couple of examples, because I know you'll ask. Hamas was democratically elected as the government in Gaza, despite the fact that the destruction of not only Israel, but the eradication of all Jews is in their official charter. Robert Mugabe, or Bobby Mugabe if you prefer, was democratically elected by a loving majority in Zimbabwe. Zimbabwe. How's that working out? Venezuela? Well, Hugo Chavez, noted personal favorite and friend of Sean Penn, to whom he constantly pointed as being unfairly characterized as a dictator when in fact he was democratically elected as a socialist, well, how'd that work out for Venezuela? Well... It's now on the brink of collapse, despite it being one of the most resource-rich nations in the entire world. Basic things like eggs, milk, flour, and toilet paper are either too expensive for the average Venezuelan or simply out of stock. Out of stock, mind you, democratically. I know, some of you will say, well, that's not fair, because really, we knew all along it technically was a dictatorship. Okay, that's fair. Let's move on to example number two. Denmark? Okay, here's the time where you point to an entirely homogenous population, about one sixtieth the size of America's, and you point to that as the blueprint. Okay, let's go there. This is a place where the middle class can't even afford a car because of the 180% new car tax. And the Prime Minister was so fed up with Americans pointing to it as a beacon for socialist success that he felt compelled to clarify I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. Sweden, I love Sweden. Okay, great bikini team, and thanks to that country, my armour now doubles as a bookcase. Speaking of which, the founder of IKEA, let's be honest, the only really cool export from Sweden, aside from a few good hockey players, left Sweden because of the stifling high tax rate. So, Sweden, good place, not bad people, but a successful model for a viable economy in today's global market? Incorrect. The fact is that over time, the greatest enemy of socialism is reality, the reality that human nature will invariably pull certain people toward individualism and success and others toward laziness and collectivism. The tension between the makers and the takers always, ALWAYS leads to socialism's inevitable collapse. But I know that I can give you examples of failed socialist economies until I'm blue in the face, and you won't care. Because at least socialism is inherently more morally altruistic than the evil, greedy, capitalist, warmongering seen in the West. Greed? What's more greedy than wanting to take from someone else something that you haven't earned? Unlike capitalism, free enterprise, which can only occur truly through voluntary transaction, socialism can only occur at gunpoint. That's what it comes down to. If you don't pay your taxes, once you get through the IRS and the auditing and the lawyers and the PR stunts, People make you give the government your money, increasing amount of your money, the more successful you are, or they send in scary men with guns to take you away. Now, so long as the people having their stuff taken away at gunpoint are in the minority, and the majority feels that they'll get to benefit from more said taken stuff, you'll always be able to win that decision through a popular vote and claim the moral high ground through democracy. Putting the word... Democratic in front of your socialism doesn't make it any inherently more moral, nor less violent. Did you get that? American wannabe socialists also. Get a job. Please, like a real job. You'll probably have to shake first. I'm Steven Crowder for Prager University.
4: How did one of the world's poorest countries, China, become, in 30 years, one of the world's richest? There is one word answer, capitalism. Here's how it happened. In 1949, the Chinese Communist Party, aka the CCP, defeated the Nationalist Party in a brutal civil war. The leader of the CCP, Mao Zedong, promised the Chinese people that he would create a new China, a socialist paradise where the benevolent state would take care of every citizen's needs from shelter to education to employment. No more greedy businessmen. Factories would be owned by their workers. No more evil landowners. The state would own all property on behalf of the people. No more hunger. Everyone could eat as much as they want at the public cafeterias. To transform China into this heaven on earth, Mao launched radical socialist reforms. Industries were nationalized, private businesses were eliminated, and land was confiscated. But rather than turning China into a heaven on earth, these policies turned China into a hell on earth. House care was cheap, but there was a chronic shortage of doctors, hospitals, and modern medicine. No one was unemployed because the government gave each person a job. But if you didn't like the job you were assigned, well, that was just too bad. Your government-assigned job was tied to your food ration. No work, no food. Speaking of food, it wasn't long after Mao took power that widespread food shortages began happening. My own parents had to get up at 3 o'clock in the morning to stand in long lines outside of a grocery store to get a pound of sugar or several ounces of cooking oil. Often, they got nothing. Every year was worse than the last. Between 1958 and 1962, China experienced the worst famine in human history. An estimated 45 million Chinese starved to death victims of their own government's murderous stupidity. Among the lives lost were my uncle, my grandaunt and her family of five, and my dad's maternal grandmother. At the time of Mao's death in 1976, more than 90% of the Chinese population lived below the poverty line, earning less than $2 a day the only equality socialism had achieved was an equal distribution of misery. Mao's successor, Deng Xiaoping, recognized that this couldn't go on much longer. The only way to save the CCP's one-party rule was to get the economy going. But how? Deng had no idea. Fortunately for him, a small group of farmers did. In 1978, these farmers, 18 of them in the village of Xiaogang, made a secret deal with their village leader. After fulfilling the government quotas, they would be allowed to keep any surplus for themselves and sell what they didn't need. Such a move was risky because it was a rejection of the CCP's socialist policies. But the result was magical. The first year after this deal went into effect, the 18 farmers produced more grain than the entire village had produced in the previous 10 years combined. The Shaogang model began to spread to other villages. When Deng heard of it, rather than punishing the farmers, he had a good sense to recognize that these simple peasants had shown him how to revive China's economy. Soon after, Deng announced sweeping economic reforms. He opened up China to the outside world, inviting foreign investments, and most importantly, loosening the government's grip on the Chinese people. The results were nothing less than astonishing. The freer the Chinese economy became, the wealthier the Chinese people became. In the space of three decades, 800 million Chinese people emerged out of poverty. Chinese cities now match and exceeds the greatest cities of the West, skyscraper for skyscraper. The CCP likes to pat itself on the back for China's economic miracle. However, the real credit should go to free market capitalism and 18 brave farmers who risked their lives to give it a try. In recent years, China's growth has slowed precisely because the current CCP leadership has moved back to a model that asserts ever more government control. The country is becoming less free with each passing year. The CCP uses technology such as facial recognition, surveillance cameras, and control of the Internet to monitor its citizens every move. More and more, there are signs that the CCP is reverting to its Maoist past. That's bad for China and bad for the world. I'm Helen Rowley, author of Confucius Never Said, for Prager University.
5: Why is socialism so popular? Less than 10 years ago, you couldn't refer to socialism in a positive way and hope to have a career in American politics. Socialism was referred to as the S-word. Now it is affirmed, either explicitly or implicitly, by just about everyone on the left. And amazingly, given socialism's record of failure, the socialists seem to be gaining ground. Why? What makes socialism so attractive to so many? Socialism, according to its proponents, is more democratic and therefore more moral than capitalism. Leftist filmmaker Michael Moore explains it for us. Democratic socialism means everyone has a seat at the table and everybody gets a slice of the pie. The famed socialist writer Irving Howe wrote something similar in his 1982 autobiography. We believe that the democracy in our political life should also be extended deeply into economic life. The basic idea here is that socialism is vindicated through its roots and popular consent. If a majority of people working through their elected representatives declare something to be a public entitlement—say, free college or free health care—then they are justified in extracting resources from those who create wealth to pay for it. As Nathan Robinson argues in his book Why You Should Be a Socialist, the moral imperative is to place the economy under the control of the people. Sounds good, at least superficially, until you dig a bit below the surface. First, what direct control do the people really have over any government institution? What control do the British people have over the National Health Service? What control do Americans have over the Department of Motor Vehicles or the U.S. Post Office? The answer, of course, is none. Given its practical impossibility, genuine popular control over government institutions is a mirage. Second, what if 51% of Americans vote to confiscate the resources of a single person, say, Bill Gates? Does that make it right? Under an authoritarian socialist government, a single dictator seizes the fruits of your labor. Everyone is against that. Under democratic socialism, a majority does. The end result is the same—you've been robbed. The fundamental problem with democratic socialism, however, is its assumption that in a free market system, the economy is not under the control of the people. This is exactly the opposite of how things work. Let me explain. Each of us are not only citizens, we are also consumers. These are overlapping categories. Every citizen is a consumer, and every consumer is also a citizen. The consumer, like the citizen, is a voter. As citizens, we vote once every two or four years. As consumers, we vote many times a day. The citizen votes with a ballot, which costs him nothing, except the inconvenience of going to the polls. The consumer votes with his money, which costs him a lot, all the time and effort he put in to earn that money. Only a fraction of citizens are eligible to vote at the ballot box, but every consumer votes in the marketplace, even felons, even children. Illegal aliens cannot vote for political candidates, but they too vote with their money. Moreover, citizens participate in a system of representative democracy. Their views are filtered through the politicians who represent them. Consumers, by contrast, vote in a system of direct democracy. If you prefer an Audi to a Lexus or the Apple iPhone to the Samsung Galaxy, you don't have to elect some other guy to exercise these preferences. You do it directly yourself by paying for them. Here, we see the secret of how those billionaires like Jeff Bezos got so rich. We made them rich. The inequality that socialists complain about is the result of popular mandate. Want fewer billionaires? Stop buying their stuff. Free markets work not through greed or exploitation, but by satisfying our wants. And the most successful entrepreneurs are those who anticipate our wants even before we have them. No one wrote Steve Jobs, asking him to make a phone that took pictures, allowed people to text messages, and listen to music. He conceived it and built it before we knew we couldn't live without it. Market economies involve a level of popular participation and democratic consent that politics can only envy. We don't need to extend democracy from the political to the economic sphere. We already have it. And the moral grounding of free markets, just like that of our political system, is in the will of the people. In the latter case, a will expressed only on election day. In the former case, a will expressed deliberately, emphatically, constantly. We don't need socialism because we already have something more moral and more democratic. It's called capitalism. I'm Dinesh D'Souza for Prager University.
6: I live in Guatemala and I work throughout Latin America. And I want to speak to the millions of fortunate Hispanic immigrants living in the United States, legally or not. I have a question for you. Why do you support the same policies in the U.S. that cause you to flee your home country? The policies I'm talking about are those that lead to a bigger and bigger central government. You know only too well that the more power the government has, the more corrupt it becomes. My home country, like most other nations in Central and South America, is very poor. 54% of the population lives in poverty, and 13% live in extreme poverty. Half of all children under five are chronically malnourished. Crippling government corruption is the norm. Opening a new business can take months, even years, because of a multitude of regulations that are designed to line the pockets of bureaucrats so the cost is much too high for the average citizen. Quite simply, unless you're politically connected in Guatemala, you probably want to leave. And in the last 20 years, many Guatemalans have left. Or to put it more honestly, they fled. The fortunate ones reached the United States, the freest and wealthiest nation in human history. There are at least one million Guatemalans living in the US. Nearly every Mexican and Central and South American immigrant in the United States whether they immigrated legally or illegally, moved or fled to the U.S. for the same reasons, economic opportunity and the freedom to shape their own lives. In short, you came to the United States to participate in what Americans call the American dream. But have you ever asked yourself, why is the United States so free, so much less corrupt, and so much more affluent than any Latin American country? The answer lies first and foremost in the unique American belief in limited government. Why? Because the smaller the government, the less the corruption, and the smaller the government, the more individual freedom and personal responsibility. And given those things, along with hard work and talent, you can accomplish your life's goals. So back to my question, Why would you support policies that keep expanding the power of the government when they are the very policies that doom your home countries? Is it because you think that when Democrats offer you free stuff, it means they really care about you? Do you think that when Republicans talk about enforcing immigration laws, it means they are going to send you back? Let's be honest, you didn't come here for free stuff. You came for the economic opportunity that allows you to work and earn. And of course, a nation has an obligation to enforce its borders. Certainly, every country in Central and South America does. In fact, much more so than the US. Perhaps you believe that your home country is poor not because of failed socialism and corrupt big government, but because of issues unrelated to ideology. Not enough natural resources, imperialism, and so on, Or worse, you believe that the US has gotten rich on the backs of poor nations. But these narratives are false. There are many nations blessed with abundant natural resources that are poor, and they are poor overwhelmingly because of corrupt governments and policies that destroy incentives to produce. Look at Venezuela, which has vast oil and mineral reserves, but has shortages of every basic necessity. Why? Because of socialist policies, because of those same deceiving politicians who promise to fight for the people and give you free stuff. And you're going to fall for these lies again in your adopted country? Do you think by electing politicians who will fight for the people, fight for social justice and raise taxes on the 1% who are exploiting the wealth of the 99% that you will get ahead? In other words, will you support the same policies and vote for the same types of politicians here who made such a mess back home? The United States became wealthy because its government stayed out of the way of its citizens. The more power you give to the government, the less power you have to control your own life. Prosperity and opportunity diminish as government grows. So why did you, like so many of my fellow Guatemalans, Come to the U.S. because your society was broken. You chose to make a new life in the United States. You could have gone to another Latin American country with a similar culture and the same language as your home country, but you didn't because the United States is different. Please, help keep it that way. I'm Gloria Alvarez, author of The Populist Deception for Prager University.
7: Life isn't fair you know what? It can't be. Here's the problem. The word fair doesn't mean justice or equity or, indeed, anything very specific. Instead, it's become a sort of all-purpose statement of moral superiority. Superiority tinged paradoxically with victimhood. Now, fairness does have an exact meaning in certain contexts. For example, if we're playing a game, fairness means that the rules should be applied impartially. When we're kids and our parents and teachers set the rules, the word still has that essential meaning. It's a young person's way of demanding what we might call equality before the law. But as we get older, the word becomes more of a whine. In the mouth of a teenager, trust me on this, it's not fair means more often than not, you won't let me do something I want. In recent years though, something odd has happened. Adults have started using the word in much the same way that teenagers do. More than in any previous generation, people today retain their teenage sense of self-centeredness. They use it's not fair as a catch-all complaint, as an assertion of wounded entitlement. Look at a Google graph of the use of the word fairness. From around 1965, it looks like the proverbial hockey stick. Flat, and then it suddenly shoots up, We've developed a fairness obsession. But what do we mean when we use the word? Do we mean justice? Do we mean equality? Do we mean need? Or do we mean something else? Suppose you and Jane buy a cake together. You pay $6 and Jane pays $4. What would be the fair way to split it up? You could do it on the basis of proportionality. In other words, you get 60% of the cake and Jane gets 40%. Or you could do it on the basis of strict egalitarianism, half each regardless of who paid what. Or you could do it on the basis of wealth. Jane has much less money than you for non essentials like cake, so maybe she should get the larger share. A case can be made for each approach. But the beauty of the word fair is that it doesn't require you to come down clearly in favour of any of them. It gives you the cover of ambiguity. So, for example, when a politician says, we want the rich to pay their fair share, he doesn't usually mean that he wants the rich to pay taxes at the same rate as everyone else. He means that he wants them to pay extra. The word fair lets him present higher rates of taxation as a form of justice. But only if we don't think about it too hard. That's the beauty of it. Fair doesn't ultimately mean proportionate or impartial, or equal. You can use it to mean almost any positive thing you like. I want fairness generally means, look at me. I'm a nice person. Demanding fairness lets you tell the world how decent you are without your actually having to contribute a penny. It's a kind of vanity. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Let's get real. The only way to distribute the cake is to see how much people are prepared to pay for their slice. Sure, that could leave a banker with a bigger slice than a baker. Sure, we might not like that distribution. We might feel that the baker is doing something more valuable than the banker. He's making delicious pastries, while the money man doesn't seem to be making anything except money for himself. But how can we judge someone else's economic worth? You might want bakers to be paid more than bankers. I might want teachers to be paid more than movie stars. Since we all have our own preferences, the only way to measure the economic value of a service is to see how much others are prepared to pay for it. That's what the market does it aggregates our preferences. It doesn't ask us in the abstract what we think someone else deserves, it tests in reality how many hours of our own labour we're prepared to put in in exchange for a product or a service. Under every other economic system, our relations are mediated by accidents of birth and social caste, and financial rewards are determined by favoritism. The free market alone gives everyone the same rights. My money is as good as yours. You can't get fairer than that. I'm Daniel Hannan, President of the Initiative for Free Trade and author of Inventing Freedom for
5: Prager University. There's a new socialism in town. I call it identity socialism. The old socialism the kind Karl Marx dreamed up was all about the working class, the sort of blue-collar worker who, ironically, voted for President Trump. But today's socialists couldn't care less about the guy in the hard hat. He had his chance at revolution and blew it. Today's socialist is all about race, gender, and transgender rights, Class is an afterthought. To understand this is to understand the left's takeover of the college campus and all the ills that takeover has spawned—from Me Too to Black Lives Matter to girls competing against biological boys. But campus culture has now metastasized into the culture of the whole society. As liberal writer Andrew Sullivan has put it, we all live on campus now. Identity socialism is first and foremost about division—not just class division, but now race division. Gender division, transgender division. Blacks and Latinos are in. Whites are out. Women are in. Men are out. Gays, bisexuals, transsexuals, transgenders are in. Heterosexuals are out. Illegals are in. Native-born citizens are out. One may think this is all part of the politics of inclusion, but to think that is to get only half the picture. The point for the left is not merely to include, but also to exclude. So where did this identity socialism come from? Meet Herbert Marcuse. Born in Berlin in 1898, Marcuse fled Germany at the dawn of the Nazi era. After stints at Columbia, Harvard, and Brandeis, Marcuse moved to California, where he joined the University of California at San Diego in 1965. You'd think that living in a paradise like Southern California, with all the comforts and privileges of academic life, might have softened Marcuse's Marx-like hatred of capitalism. But it was not to be. If anything, the more he prospered, the more he wanted to bring the system down. He had a problem, however, a big one. Socialism didn't work in America. Life was too good. The working class in the U.S. didn't aspire to overthrow the existing order. They aspired to own a home. How could you foment revolution without revolutionaries? Classic Marxism had no answer for this. But almost a hundred years after Marx, Marcuse did. The answer was college students. They would be the recruits for what he termed the great refusal, the repudiation and overthrow of free market capitalism. Conditions were perfect. The students of the 60s were already living in what was in effect a socialist commune, a university campus. Rather than being grateful to their parents for providing them with this opportunity to learn and study, they were restless and bored. Most importantly, they were looking for meaning, a form of self-fulfillment that went beyond material gratification. Of course, as with all successful social movements, timing was critical. Here, Marcuse was very fortunate. The 60s was the decade of the Vietnam War. Students faced the prospect of being drafted. Thus, they had selfish reasons to oppose the conflict. Marcuse and his acolytes turned this selfishness into righteousness by teaching the students that they weren't draft dodgers. They were noble resistors who were part of a global struggle for social justice. Marcuse portrayed Ho Chi Minh and the Viet Cong as a kind of third world proletariat, fighting to free themselves from American imperialism. This represented a transposition of Marxist categories. The new working class were the Vietnamese freedom fighters. The evil capitalists were American soldiers serving on behalf of the American government. Marcuse found, in addition to the students' other groups ripe for the taking, the first was the Black Power movement, which was a militant adjunct to the civil rights movement. The beauty of this group, from Marcuse's point of view, was that unlike white students, its members wouldn't have to be instructed in the art of grievance. Blacks had grievances that dated back centuries. Through another Marxist transposition, blacks would become the working class, whites the capitalist class. Race, in this analysis, took the place of class. Another emerging source of disgruntlement was the feminists. Marcuse recognized they, too, could be taught to see themselves as an oppressed class. This, of course, would require a further Marxist transposition. Women would now be viewed as the working class and men the capitalist class. The class category would now be shifted to gender. Marcuse recognized that educating and mobilizing all these groups—the bored students, the aggrieved blacks, and the angry feminists— would take time, but he wasn't in a hurry. Soon enough, the radical students would be the radical professors, teaching identity socialism to a fresh crop of impressionable recruits. Over time, Marcuse believed the university could produce a new type of culture, and that culture would then spill into the larger society to infect primary education, the news media, and entertainment. Even big business, the hated capitalist class, itself would succumb. He was right. Identity Socialism has arrived. I'm Dinesh D'Souza for Prager University.
8: Capitalism versus socialism. We can sum up each economic system in one line. Capitalism is based on human greed. Socialism is based on human need, right? No, wrong, so wrong, it's exactly backwards. And I'll prove it to you. Been on Amazon lately? Each of the thousands of products Amazon offers represents the work of people who believe they have something you want or need. If they're right, they prosper. If they're wrong, they don't. That's how the free market works. It encourages people to improve their lives by satisfying the needs of others. No one starts a business making a thing or providing a service for themselves. They start a business to make things or provide services for others. I speak from personal experience. When I was the CEO of the company that owns Carl's Jr. and Hardee's restaurant chains, we spent millions of dollars every year trying to determine what customers wanted. If our customers didn't like something, we changed it, and fast. Because if we didn't, our competitors would, pun intended, eat us for lunch. The consumer, that's you, has the ultimate power. In effect, you vote with every dollar you spend. In a socialist economy, the government has the ultimate power. It decides what you get from a limited supply it decides should exist. Instead of millions of people making millions of decisions about what they want, a few people, government elites, decide what people should have and how much they should pay for it. Not surprisingly, they always get it wrong. Have you ever noticed that late-stage socialist failures always run out of essential items like toilet paper? Of course, this isn't a problem for those who have the right connections with the right people. Those chosen few get whatever they want. But everyone else is out of luck. Venezuela, once the richest country in South America, is the most recent example of socialism driving a prosperous country into an economic ditch. Now, maybe you think it's an unfair example. I, I'm not sure why, but okay. We'll ignore the fact that leftist activists celebrated it as a great socialist success right up until it wasn't. But what about Western European countries? Don't they have socialist economies? People seem pretty happy there. Why can't we have what they have? Free health care, free college, stronger unions. Good question, and the answer may surprise you. There are no socialist countries in Western Europe. Most are just as capitalist as the United States. The only difference, and it's a big one, is that they offer more government benefits than the U.S. does. We can argue about the cost of these benefits and the point at which they reduce individual initiative, thus doing more harm than good. Scandinavians have been debating those questions for years. But only a free-market capitalist economy, can produce the wealth necessary to sustain all of the supposedly free stuff Europeans enjoy. To get the free stuff, after all, you have to create enough wealth to generate enough tax revenue to pay for everything the government gives away. Without capitalism, you're Venezuela. In a 2015 speech at Harvard, Denmark's prime minister took great pains to make this point. I know that some people in the U.S. associate the Nordic model with socialism. Therefore, I would like to make one thing clear. Denmark is far from a socialist planned economy. Denmark is a market economy. So when you point to Denmark as a paragon of socialism, you're really singing the praises of capitalism. The more capitalism, the less socialism you need. Look at America since 2017. A policy of lower taxes and less government regulation—that's more capitalism—has led to a robust economic expansion, something thought impossible just a few years earlier. Unemployment, notably among minority groups, typically most at risk for poverty, is at a generational low. Economic expansion gets people off welfare and into work. That's less socialism. None of this requires a degree in economics. Common sense is all you need. That's why it's so frustrating to see young people praising socialism and criticizing capitalism. It's bad enough that they're working against their own interests—better job prospects, better wages, personal freedom. But they're also working against the interests of the less fortunate. Capitalism leads to economic democracy. Socialism leads to the economic dictatorship of the elite. Always and everywhere. So beware what you ask for. You just might get it. I'm Andy Puster, the author of The Capitalist Comeback for Prager University.
0: In the contemporary world, it's taken as a given that capitalism, with its free market and profit motive, is based on selfishness and produces selfishness, while socialism is based on selflessness and produces selflessness. Well, the opposite is true. Whatever its intentions, socialism produces far more selfish individuals and a far more selfish society than a free market economy does. And once this widespread selfishness catches on, it is almost impossible to undo it. Here's an illustration. In 2010, the United States President Barack Obama addressed a large audience of college students. At one point in his speech, He announced that young people will now be able to remain on their parents' health insurance plan until age 26. I don't ever recall hearing a louder, more thunderous, or more sustained applause than I did then. Had the President announced that a cure for cancer had been discovered, it is highly doubtful that the applause would have been as loud or as long. But what were they so happy about? To be told that you can now remain dependent on your parents until age 26 should strike a young person as demeaning, not liberating. Throughout American history, and for that matter, all of Western history, the great goal of young people was to become a mature adult, beginning with being independent of mom and dad. Socialism and the welfare state destroy this aspiration. In various European countries, and now increasingly in the U.S., it is becoming common for young people to live with their parents well into their 30s and not infrequently beyond. And why not? In the welfare state, taking care of yourself is no longer a virtue. Why? Because the government will take care of you. Therefore, socialism enables, and as a result produces, people whose preoccupations become more and more self-centered. How many benefits will I receive from the government? Will the government pay for my education? Will the government pay for my health care? What is the youngest age at which I can retire? How much paid vacation time can I get? How many days can I call in sick and still get paid? How many weeks of paid paternity or maternity leave am I entitled to? The list gets longer with every election of a liberal or progressive or left-wing party. And then each entitlement becomes a right. But we're not done. There are even more destructive effects of socialism. Entitlements create citizens who lack a character trait that every human should have – gratitude. You cannot be happy if you are not grateful, and you cannot be a good person if you are not grateful. That's why we constantly tell our children, say thank you. But socialism undoes that. After all, why would a person be grateful for receiving an entitlement? Who's going to be grateful for getting what they're entitled to? So instead of thank you, the citizen of the welfare state is taught to say, what more am I entitled to? Yet the left insists that it's capitalism and the free market, not socialism. That produces selfish people. But the truth is that capitalism and the free market produce much less selfish people. Teaching people to work hard and take care of themselves and others, and that they should earn what they receive, produces less selfish, not more selfish people. Capitalism teaches people to work more. Socialism teaches people to demand more. Which attitude do you think? will make a better society. I'm Dennis Prager.